And it was just that moment where it was basically her asserting, like, I am so much stronger than you, you pathetic shit. Welcome to the Skiffy Infanty Show, Reading Rangers. Brown Girl in the Ring, a book that has nothing to do with boxing, much to Alex's surprise. <laughs> <laughs> because Alex is a stupid asshole. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex. I appreciate that. I'm Sean. I'm Alex. And on today's show, we will be talking about... Brown Girl in the Ring by Nalo Hopkinson, published in 1998 by Warner Aspect as part of their first novel competition. This was the winner of that competition. Uh, The novel won the Locus Award for Best First Novel in 1999 and got Hopkinson a Campbell Award for Best New Writer in the same year. Obviously, we refer to that now as the Astounding Award because the name has been changed, but at the time it was called the Campbell Award. So there you go. This will be part of our pairing of adaptations feature, which means that Alex will be back for when we talk about Brown Girl Begins, a 2017 prequel directed by Sharon Lewis. So that should be exciting. Oh, yeah. And and, and now I know that it is not about boxing. Uh, <laughs> I'm so dumb. Uh But before we do that, a friendly reminder that we want to hear from you. Share your comments with us about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions, all one word. We want to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topic suggestions, and more, so get those thoughts in. Please ask Sean the most ludicrous questions that you can think of. Ask me questions about rocks. I might answer them truthfully. Depends on how much I've had to drink. Yeah, I I think if you want to ask Alex really strange rock questions, uh, we could do that too. And Alex will be happy to oblige, I'm sure. Uh, what 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 the listeners don't know, but I'm going to tell them now, is that we're actually over 45 minutes late recording this podcast because I trapped Sean on a Skype call and told him about rocks for 45 minutes, and he put up with it. So you know, friendship. I that is true. Friendship. Aww, the best Aww. ship. <laughs> that is true. All right. Now we need to get to the main event, uh, discussing Brown Girl in the Ring. And Alex has asked to give an attempt at summarizing this book, which I think Alex will do just fine. And so, Alex, what is this book about? So this book takes place in a sort of near future Toronto, right? It's Toronto. Yep. Where uh, basically, uh, due to economic collapse, there has been like massive flight to the suburbs and the city center has basically been abandoned and cut off and is now ruled by like this horrible criminal person named Rudy. And in this setting, we find out there's like this this Toronto council person or something. She's some politician. She's the premier. Premier's like our governor. Okay, so she is basically the governor of the province. So anyway, back on track. So she is undergoing heart failure. And so she decides that as a political move, I am not, I still don't entirely understand why, but I don't think I need to. But like people have been getting organs from pig farms, but she has decided to bring back human organ donation 
again, for reasons I don't quite understand, I don't think it matters. And so her people basically go to Rudy in the inner city of Toronto because they basically want him to snatch the heart of a poor person that no one will care about and give it to the premier lady because that's not fucked up. Rudy dispatches this guy named Tony, who is a drug addict, but he used to be a nurse, and he's supposed to go find somebody who is like a blood type and body type match, and into this we meet Tijan. Uh, she's a young woman who's just had a baby, like, her baby is so young that he doesn't even have his, like, permanent name yet, and you find out that she used to be Tony's girlfriend, but she left him because he's a drug addict, and she didn't tell him that baby is his baby, because the baby is just called baby at the moment. Her grandmother, Grosjean, is like like a, a healer woman and does traditional Caribbean practices of magic. Tijan is staying with her after having the kid. And then Tony shows up and I don't know, do you want me to spoil this entire book? I think at that point, you've kind of got the ideas. Tony shows up and things go awry. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just say that that grandma has is a blood type match for the important pol- politician lady yeah, things get bad and ancestral spirits get involved and Tijan has like visions and the ancestral spirits give her and her grandma a task that her grandma was supposed to get done a long time ago and didn't for reasons that I don't want to spoil because it was like, oh, fuck when I read that. <laughs> so, you know, like uh, uh, it's it's like a family drama with like a political struggle for the city plus like this sort of wider politics of the province altogether where it's really just like Tijan kind of like starting to figure out her place in the world because she hasn't even totally figured it out by the end of the book yeah and i think that kind of gets the, the the basics down of of the setting for this uh, so a couple of things that I, I think would be helpful is yeah we we're gonna eventually get to obviously get to spoilers but the, the big thing that i think would, which is explaining why utley is the premiere is seeking out a human heart is that she's done this analysis or at, le- at least her helper has done it, this analysis to determine that if she t- makes this move and makes an argument for returning to uh, voluntary human organ donation, which is ironic given that this organ is not acquired voluntarily. Oh, no. Not at all. That this will help her in her poll numbers, in part because there's an enormous amount of conflict occurring regarding the there's different pers- perspectives of people who want to go back to you know getting away from using animals in what is effectively a massively exploitative pretty violent system right in the sense that the pigs are killed and their organs are harvested uh and so they want to go back to human acquisition uh in order to sort of bring us back to like the human way of doing things and that has been determined that it's going to help her win her re-election because she has run into a serious problem which is that she's made some decisions regarding taxation and rules about money allocation for reconciliation with indigenous groups, which has become massively unpopular. I guess we can kind of understand why that would be today, uh, because if you did that today, I think I think it would be considered widely unpopular by certain quarters of, of our society in either the US or Canada. Yeah, so that's all going on. Also, yeah, Toronto is blockaded. <laughs> it should be noted too. <laughs> and Well, it's like the city center, because basically... There was like an economic collapse and riots and then the city center got blockaded and and basically the impression I got was that all the white people who had any kind of money 
ran for it and are living in the suburbs now and have just blockaded the city center and all of the brown people in it. It's fair to note that that the inner city of Toronto, which is what we're shown here, is heavily minority populations. That's overwhelmingly who exists in this space. It's Afro-Caribbean people. There are some Indian people uh, and other groups, but Afro-Caribbean being obviously the the largest demographic that's presented, which makes sense because this is Hopkinson's interest for telling this story. So it is very much a minority space. And I think it'd be fair to say that this book is in a lot of ways Hopkinson's comment, at least from a Canadian perspective on the white flight issue, Americans should be familiar with, which is exactly kind of what you were saying, Alex, which is when especially wealthy middle class and and higher white people left the inner city for the suburbs uh, with taking with them enormous amounts of wealth and and leaving a lot of inner cities in less than great conditions um, under the guise that you basically were were leaving all the minorities behind because they make us uncomfortable among other things that are more complicated than that statement that's fairly reductive but yeah yeah well and, and i mean what i find kind of interesting is like you know you've got the people on the outside who are basically treating the people living in inner Toronto as, as you know, potentially an expendable resource where the person who is functionally in charge of in, inner Toronto because he's the fucking crime boss, Rudy, is also treats the people of inner Toronto like an expendable resource. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I feel like that parallel really connects, because um, I mean, like, all the stuff with Rudy especially is very much about, like, patriarchal violence. Yeah. And and so it kind of, like, connects the criminal patriarchal violence of Rudy with the equally patriarchal violence of the state, even though that patriarchal violence is is being done by a white lady. Yeah. That's, I mean, what's interesting in what you were suggesting there is there's a lot of this sort of uh, rigid expectations of either it mean patriarchal but also maternal uh which are, are very much authoritative you know even even groshin uh, the, the grandmother has a, an incredibly authoritative way about her even though we know largely speaking she's mostly a good person uh, compared to the premier who is you know willfully but knows has to know precisely what's going to be done which is someone's likely to have their organ harvested against their will Right. So there's that, which is, you know, she views other bodies as expendable. And so it's it is patriarchal violence, but but done from I guess you could argue that that patriarchal violence can be perpetrated by essentially any anybody. Um, it's more about the way that the system of power operates. Well, well, it's it's one of the things that I've always found really fascinating. And I mean, I, I wrote about it in a book that hasn't been published yet, so it doesn't matter. But like the way that a lot of times patriarchal violence is obviously like the patriarchy is obviously male centered but sometimes the the worst perpetuators and defenders of the patriarchy are actually women because they are women who have managed to to gain enough power that they are defending their own power base by defending that power structure and that's why you get shit like fucking Ann Coulter saying that women shouldn't be allowed to vote. Oh, God. But, I mean, you see what I mean. Yeah. Like, so yeah. it's weird where you're like, you are technically oppressed by this power structure, but because you are, like, high enough above other people that you don't want to risk your position, you will defend this sick system and perpetrate and perpetuate it. 
I mean, it's interesting with with Utley's. I mean, with Rudy, it's very clear. Like his his system of patriarchal violence. I mean, he's just a piece of shit. He's just a garbage human. Yeah, I mean, and it's fairly clear that he is sort of like the default evil of this. I mean, he's. We learn through this story that he has has used his own family in his his twisted magics in order to make himself young, in order to maintain his power and authority over people. And he doesn't seem to care who he really hurts. It's it's all about power. Utley is is interesting because she does get kind of a redemption, which is at the end she decides that, you know, these all of this should be more about like an, basically bringing back organ donor cards. Yeah, but is that really Utley? Is it really? Or is it uh, it could be Groshin because there's this this section where her heart's failing and she has a vision, which is a thing that happens to uh, Tijon much much more frequently in this book. So yeah, you you might be right that maybe it is Groshan uh, that is in there. Yeah, I mean the the entire hint is is then you see Utley once when she's thinking and having that vision, but then when she's talking to the guy, she uses she she says something is stupidness. Right, right. She uses some of the language. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question because I think that the book is is doing some interesting stuff where it's it seems to be a little bit ambiguous because there's also this Dunstan figure whose whose ghost comes out of the calabash which is holding one of the um a duppy which is holding one of the spirits that at least within Afro-Caribbean folklore as I understand it there are sort of two spirits there's a spirit that's meant to go on to the afterlife their version of the afterlife and then there's the spirit that can potentially hang around on the earthly realm and that's the one that Rudy is, is sucking out, although it seems to be that they've kind of merged here. So he's just taking like the whole spirit out and using them basically to feed his power. And one of the spirits that he takes is Dunstan, which is the new husband of his, I guess we're spoiling, ex-wife. <laughs> to me, like the biggest oh shit moment of the book was actually when you find out that Rudy is Grosjean's ex-husband because right. he was a piece of shit who beat her. That was like, whoa. That was the, the biggest oh shit of the book. And honestly, the most upsetting part was was when Tony kills Grosjean. But yeah, I'm, I'm still mad about that. I mean, it's it's a really hor- it's horrible what he does. I think that Hopkinson tries to make what Tony uh, Rudy, we, we don't sympathize with because he's he is just a monster. Everything about him where right? he, he beats Grosjean, he 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 flays people alive. He uses uh, a buffalo. He makes toad. zombies, like he makes zombies, li- like you know, like Caribbean style, like right. not undead people, but people who have been like treated with drugs and stuff, so they basically have no will. Right. They ba- he like hollows them out basically spiritually almost. Um. So he's got this character Melba, for example, who apparently we get one line where she didn't give him some of the profits he was due, and he decided to turn her into one of his zombies, and he tries to. Do this to um, Dijon as well, but obviously doesn't succeed because otherwise this book would have a very dark ending. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting because Rudy, you know, we, there's nothing about Rudy that is salvageable. The man is just bad. Even the 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 gods who show up are basically like, you're you're just you're done. <laughs> like nothing about you. We're not keeping you around. We're not helping you. Like you're you're screwed, bub. I feel like Tony does get somewhat of a redemption in the sense that we understand why why he he does it out of fear right he yeah. is he cuz he literally witnesses Rudy 
skinning a person alive, skinning Melba alive, and watching all of this just horrible torture occur and drives him to fear so much because he now knows that he's all basically powerless. And which is, is so interesting because it's contrasted to Tishon, who kind of, I think, starts feeling somewhat powerless, but by the end really comes into the opposite, right? She has not just the power of resisting Tony because she spends much of the book kind of like pining after him a little bit, but she also just takes all of this this godly power into herself. There's even this moment where they, I think, the prince of the cemetery basically tells her like, yeah, you had like eight spirit gods within your mind at a single moment. So she she gains all of this power and becomes strong. And Tony actually just, but he's like super overly confident. And he's, you know, oh, I'm such a good man. Look how great I am to being honestly like a child at the end. He's, he's sort of reduced because of the consequences of the things that he's done, but also the the fact that he he is a weak man he's he's not capable of standing up for himself and those that he is supposed to take care of and so it's interesting to watch at the end we don't get the story where like tony necessarily gets a full redemption right where he he comes bent to himself and we get the you know the reunification of the nuclear family we get kind of the opposite i mean i i know i respect neil hopkinson as a better writer than that and she <laughs> proved me right so yeah i mean i think that there's there's something there about, I think when we meet Tony, there, there's two ways Tony's story goes, right? He actually cleans up his act and he becomes basically worthy of her, right? And being a father. And there's a moment when you think that that might be where this is going, right? That maybe he knows that this kid's his father now. He finds out somewhere in the middle of the book. And you think maybe that's what he's going to do. He's going to finally change his act. That's the one way it could go. The other way is the way kind of that we got, which is he just he just falls deeper and deeper into it. And ultimately, he can never be worthy of that role. He, in this case, because he's committed arguably an unforgivable act, he has murdered the grandmother. And so, yeah, so he he kind of gets the, the story that I think is the more compelling one. I think this story does a lot where it really tries to empower women in its story by making them have much more agency and control over their lives and not requiring men to provide for them, mm. which Tijan, I think it'd be fair to say, basically does. So Yeah, I mean... It's like, it is interesting that you go from, because I mean, the first, like the first part of the book, I was really frustrated with Tijan because she obviously, she had her shit together enough that like she and this guy had a thing. She got pregnant. She realized that he wasn't going to stop using drugs and he wasn't going to get out of crime. So she like was like, I'm leaving and I'm, you know, not even going to tell him that the baby is his because I don't want to get mixed up in this and I don't want the baby mixed up in this. And then when he shows back up, which he's he's not like initially specifically like sniffing around to murder her grandmother. It's just they meet up and, you know, she's like, oh, no, I still kind of have a thing for him and all this lust and all that. Where she almost has like this helpless attraction to him where she knows it's a bad idea and she does it anyway, which just drove me nuts. But I'm also like, that's kind of realistic in a really sad way. And, and then, you know, when he kills her grandma, it's like, no, you're done. At which point I was like, oh, good, just throw him to the wolves. And then she kind of like, she she keeps him from getting killed, which I was like, eh, she's not a bad person, even if it would be more emotionally <laughs> satisfying to be like, fuck this guy. Right. But then like by the end, she is just like no interest in him whatsoever. Right. She And her big growth has been from being like, being so angry and hating him to being basically like, I pity this person 
and maybe someday I'll be able to forgive him, but not today. You know, yeah. that also doesn't matter because he is out of my life. And, and and I mean, I think like the the real like amazing moment there is, you know, he, uh, he comes to, to her grandmother's wake functionally and he's being like, I'm sorry, but I saw what he did. And Tijan was like, I also saw what he did. Yep. Speaking of, you know, what, Ru- you know, Rudy like flaying Melba alive. And it was just that moment where it was basically her asserting, like, I am so much stronger than you, you pathetic shit. <laughs> to, to me, the way it, it read where he was, where, you know, Tony's being like, well, but I was just really scared. I saw what he did. There was almost like, it felt like this ex- expectation where she'd be like, oh, I understand. It's okay. You know, they're there. And take on that, like, woman as comforter role. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, yeah, so did I. <laughs> yeah. And, it, and he just like deflates and then goes into the wake. I think it's an interesting thing that Hopkinson does here, an interesting thing, which is that I think some writers would want to sort of spell these things out in a lot more detail and spend more time. And I think at times Hopkinson in this book just wants to have like one line, one piece of dialogue do a lot of work. And so in a way, like this is a book that I think is, I wouldn't say intentionally rereadable, but you should reread it because I feel like you you would get so much more by rereading it and having those experiences of of having lines with so much depth in them. I mean, the one you're reading off is it's precisely one because we can pack so much interpretation into just that that one line. We don't need much more than that. So I, it's 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 a thing that I really appreciate about Hopkinson's work in in general is just that she is a she is a stunning writer. Oh yeah. I mean, basically, I, I was sitting there looking at the length of this, and I was like, "Wow, this is really short." I mean, she does not waste an in- she does not waste a single word in this entire novel. Like, yeah, I, I am incredibly jealous of that on a craft standpoint. It's amazing. I, what's really cool is this is uh, depending on the edition you have, but the version I have is about two hundred and fifty pages, and it doesn't feel rushed. No, not at all. And despite that, right, she has to set up a dystopian Toronto. Right. With with some political back, you know, background of what's going on. She's got this almost kind of a frame narrative with the premier Utley. And then you've got all of these family dynamics that have to be revealed. There's the the realization that Tijon has when she she finds out that magic is essentially real Afro-Caribbean folklore and folktales are real. Uh, she can serve as a conduit for the gods. That all has to occur in here. There's the baby Right. He's got to have like his own little story. I mean, he doesn't talk in this, just to be clear. There's not like a moment when baby just gets up and is like, what up? And I mean, starts... technically, at one point he does talk. He does. Because Papa Legbara rides him. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh, you should specify by rides him uh, is inside of him as in spirit form and, and uses yeah. his body as a conduit. You're right. So he does have a moment where he talks. And that's obviously pretty jarring. That moment. It was creepy. <laughs> it, it was intensely well done. Very well done. It's really incredible. I think what it what it does for me a lot is I, I'm not a long ass book person. Like a book, if it's like 800 pages, like those 800 pages better be really, really, really good. Because I find that sometimes those like doorstopper books, they, they just have lots of unnecessary fat in them for me. This book is kind of the opposite, which is that it it's just so it's so perfectly packed in that it 
the pacing is is remarkably well done. Even when I hit the point where I was like, oh man, like are they just gonna have like a like a sixty page battle sequence at the end? I was like, oh no, like there was another dynamic that happened in that that spot that made that so that it wasn't something where you had a massive unnecessarily long climax. It just sort of does a lot of really interesting things plot wise in order to keep the the momentum going, but also to have a lot of release towards the end. And there is a shocking amount of release at the end. This is I, I don't I, Hopkins is just good. This is really what it comes down to. I mean, she's definitely earned every award she's ever gotten. She's freaking amazing. I mean, and this is her first book. She went and wrote this and she was like, I, I'm making a statement. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to remember my name. <laughs> oh, no, she's so good. So I, I know that we talked about, you know, we talked a little bit about the, the politics of this book, which is, you know, dealing with sort of inner city stuff. There's obviously these character dynamics. I guess the, the other thing that I thought was interesting that maybe we could talk about a little bit was um, because because of the, the situation that occurs in this book, uh, you know, Toronto is kind of closed off. And so you have a lot more folks who have been sort of left behind who come from in, in our case the biggest focus is on afro-caribbean culture uh, and so you have this sort of interesting contrast done throughout the book where you have uh Grosjean basically doing her best with what she has available to go back to the roots of you know traditional medicines from from the caribbean versus the sort of much more clinical western medicine variety which is coming from mostly from utley and tony tony became an interesting conduit for this because he spends at least half this book even when he sees stuff still not believing what he's actually seeing and thinking it's all like a big game and a big trick on his mind (laughs) yeah i feel like he he does not actually believe it until the duppy like eats part of his hand basically Pretty much. Even still, like it, it might even be the moment when he finally like just can't ignore it. It's like with Rudy, right? Watching all this horrible stuff be done and watching the the duppy, for example, um, which is like you know this <laughs> like flying hell spawn ball of fire and horror. I think what's weird about Tony is just how much he fights against all of these these traditional ways of seeing and thinking about the world. Whereas, like, from from Tijon's perspective, I mean, that, that process is fairly quick. You know, she, she kind of doesn't quite believe it at the beginning in the sense of, like, I don't think these are things are real. But she's having these these visions, and it's kind of impossible for her to ignore all of it in a way that, that Tony seems, like, desperate to ignore. Yeah. You know, it, it's all scientific, right? There are very clear answers, and things make total sense. You know, A is to B is to C, but in the way that the Caribbean folklore of this works is it's much more complicated and it's also much more personal and individual. So like, uh, Tijan's relationship with the, the gods, like she has a specific father deity who basically sees her as, as like one of his own, but each person may have a different one. And so your relationship to those has a, relationship to the power that you may be able to wield but also your relationship to the world around you whereas it's like western medicine that that's that doesn't exist at all it's it's just like you know what is your ailment let's give you you know aspirin you have solved and that's kind of it so like the thing i actually also found really interesting with just kind of like the the ancestral spirits and all that was um when grosjean does the the ceremony to try to to basically ask the favor so that 
Tony and Tijan can be invisible while they're trying to get Tony out of the city and that doesn't go well. But anyway, <laughs> though, I mean, the only reason it doesn't actually go well is because of Rudy interfering. Right. Other, otherwise, Tony would have been fine. Grosjean is, is kind of like really nervous because her father spirit hasn't been talking to her and, and then finally does. And basically we find out it's because he's pissed off at her because years ago he told her that she needed to kill Rudy and she hasn't. Yeah. And then he's basically like, well, okay, Tijan, you got to do it now. And just that, that sort of like that, that relationship where like, if you don't, you know, have, have a good relationship with the spirits, they're just not going to talk to you because they're mad. And, and, and then you go over to like Rudy where, um, I guess his, his, his father's spirit was Papa Lagbara. And at one point he, you know, this, this man who's absolutely a piece of shit already gets like when, um, after Grosjean threw him out he, like, gets beaten up by some gangsters, and then he basically, like, keeps summoning Papa Legbara until, and being like, I want something, until his father spirit gets so fucking sick of him summoning that he's like, well, fine, I'll tell you how to make a duppy because it's such a disgusting and terrible process that I know you're going to be put off of it, and then you don't, and, and you won't do it, and you'll stop asking me. And instead, Rudy's like, okay, cool, let's go. Yep. And that and then the spirits stop talking to Rudy because they're all like, you motherfucker. <laughs> right. It's interesting that, that a, a big part of this is about how people c- go down such disturbingly different paths because because Rudy is he he has effectively lost his humanity before he even does most of the despicable acts that we we see uh, because he is he's he it's not even a question for him right he just basically is like oh well that's how you get a duppy all right done i'm gonna do it whereas like with mijon she's clearly apprehensive about what's being asked of her to appease appease the spirits right which is she literally as you said right to to murder rudy to take care of him to stop him from doing what he's doing because he's doing what the spirits consider to be bad immoral right a violation great well i mean like he takes out to make a duppy and he makes it even worse which right. is impressive and so there's there's i think the, these sort of two different levels of right rudy is so happy to commit horrible acts uh mijan and tijan are not right they don't want to have to do it and i appreciate that the solution to the problem in this book is not that tijan must sacrifice what makes her a good person in order to solve the problem of the big bad who is in fact very very bad because i think this is a dystopia so things are bad and yet this book has some sense of hope at the end which is kind of nice even when like uh, Papa Lagbara shows up, right? That you know he brings all the the people up from the depths of, I guess, the version of hell, right? Like Tijan gets to say goodbye to her gr- her I was grandmother. Say, I don't think it, I don't think it's hell as such. I think they're they're coming up from Guinea Land, right? They're coming up from Guinea Land. Excuse me. It's sort of like the afterlife of sorts, and he brings all of Rudy's victims up, and I guess Rudy like has to like relive all of the horrible things that he's done to people. I mean, it's it's a little unclear because all we get is Tijan is like, oh, this is really disturbing and covers her eyes. And then when she looks again, he's just like little like Rudy chunks all over the carpet <laughs> as he deserves. He's like a little Rudy loin chop left. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so like there there is also like the one thing, you know, just again, one line in the book where I want to say it's I think it's actually 
Papaleg Barra who, who says it, but it's something about like Grosjean, even when she was, you know, in, in the position where her father spirit was not speaking to her because he was pissed at her, all of all of the the ma- all of the magic and all of that the work that she ever did was was to serve the spirits and to have that kind of relation like that kind of relationship with them as opposed to Rudy, who was just like, basically, give me what I want. Right. <laughs> and, you know, you also see that just that contrast between like, you know, Tijan at the end, you know, basically, if you know, if you're a healer, like you're basically your entire life is serving other people. Yeah. And, and just that also that contrast between, you know, Rudy and the, the politician lady and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting contrasts even between, and I, and I also like that that Tijan at the end, she also kind of admits like I'm I'm doing this for now, but I don't know what my my life goal is going to be, so I'm gonna take the role of my grandmother, but I don't know if that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. There there is like throughout so many cool contrasts between all of these different major figures, the you know Tijan and Tony, who we've talked about before, different levels of. I guess you could say bravery in in a sense, uh, Rudy versus uh, Grosjean. Uh, and then you have, you know, even like the different uh, Rudy henchmen, Crack Monkey and a uh, Crapaw. And then there's one other one. I, I don't whatever. Like they all get basically messed up. So they get what's coming to them. And I mean, the nice thing is every time one of these assholes gets what's coming to them, it is not Tijan doing it. It is the spirits being like... <laughs> Fuck you, people! <laughs> right, right. I mean that—that's a big thing, right? Because at the at the end, instead of having it be Tijan has to do all of this literally herself. In fact, she attempts it. Right? She does shoot Rudy. It, it's more about like opening the door so that the spirits can take care of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's from a a moral standpoint point really nice to see as a story point, ra- rather than having our main character have to. You could argue that murder takes a piece out of you, right? Having to kill somebody else, you know, even if it's necessary, right? It's not a thing that most people want to have to sit with, especially someone who has been raised around a healer uh, and who, you know, has watched this man do horrible things. Like, she doesn't want to have to actually kill the guy. And yet, that might be a thing she might have to do. Instead, though, that the story allows her to not have to be the one that effectively pulls the trigger, although she does attempt it. I was going to say, I mean, effectively, she actually does resolve to kill him. You know, I get the impression that she she gets a good shot off on him. She does. It's just yeah. because of the, the duppy pot, it doesn't kill him. So that's also, in a way, kind of interesting because she does attempt to take matters in her own hands and it doesn't work. And at that point, she has nothing left to do but appeal to the spirits who can actually get it done after she's shattered the calabash. Right, yeah, and this has to do with, like, the big overarching story, which is her talking to the jab-jab and being, like, him giving her cryptic messages and her having to figure out what they mean and then figuring him out towards the end. The jab-jab's creepy, by the way. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's Papa Legbara, who's also creepy, but awesome. He is cool. I love when he shows up in the elevator and he's just got, like, his hat and he's he's just looking all fine. I, I'm really stoked when we're going to talk. I don't know if he's going to show up in, in uh, Brown Girl Begins because it's a, a prequel story and I don't know exactly what the, the plot is, but I'm really curious if he does appear, how how he's going to be attired <laughs> because he is, he is something else in this book. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, he's cool. Yeah, he's awesome. 
I think part of when I first read this book, so I read this book in the mid 2000s, maybe 2007 in a Mm. uh, in a course on uh, it was an American studies course that happened to be on African science fiction, which at the time for my brain, young, young whippersnapper that I was, I was like, I'm sorry, what's African science fiction? Is that that's a thing that exists? And lo and behold, it was, in fact, a thing that existed. And so we read it in that class. I remember my very first experience of that of being like utterly blown away because what was being presented was it, stuff that's effectively real, right? People believe in these these god beings. They believe in these different spirits, the 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 Sukayan and uh, duppies and jab jabs, which is jab jabs are more part of carnival or the Jouvert. You know, the, all this stuff is stuff that's real, but it's being presented here in a as a completely different, right, a totally mm-hmm. different pantheon than anything I had ever experienced up, up to that point, where everything I had read in fantasy or science fiction was fairly Eurocentric. Yeah. And this book is not, I think, in part, that might have something to do with why it was so, had such an impact at the time that it released, because there hadn't been a lot of those, at least in the science fiction fantasy community uh, in the West. Uh, this hadn't been a thing that had been around that much. I mean, nowadays, it's it's a book from, what, 20, 23 yeah. years ago? See, and, and I think that's why my, you know, I'm kind of like, and what of it? Because, <laughs> yeah, fair. you know, if, if I'd read it around the time it came out, I, I'm pretty sure, yeah, I would have been like mind blown. You know, it's it's fantasy that's not about like totally not Europe, right, but like yeah. you know, we're now in in 2021, so this is the first time I've I've read this book. I've previously read things like Children of Blood and Bone, and and you know, also things that that have other cultural foundations that are not European white. I was so I, I'm like, this is cool, but it's not as like it doesn't feel as groundbreaking because she broke the ground, <laughs> you know, twenty years ago or whatever, and, and I'm only just catching up. That's that's a fair point. It, it, it probably something worth worth thinking about because we are seeing more diverse fantasies being published now than probably 10 15 20 even 30 years ago oh god ago. yes obviously some of that is also we're seeing a bit more attention given to those things and so less stuff is following through the cracks than used to so so there's a part of that which is like this that's actually a really good thing that this book isn't wasn't like mind blowing uh because there's so much a, of of a lot of this kind of work being done now that maybe didn't exist or at least wasn't as visible when I first read it in yeah. the late 2000s or even when we both were alive and this book was released in 1998. Yeah, I I mean it, it's kind of like, you know, I'm sure people who are reading, you know, like sci-fi and fantasy now if they went back and read about read some of the stuff from like the 90s that mm. was like super groundbreaking because it had like a gay character or you know a bisexual openly bisexual character or a character that was not of a binary gender or whatever and they'd be like oh this is a little mm, not sure because of the you know those books squeeze through and now we've got like such like a wider range yeah. so, i mean obviously i am not saying like uh about brown girl in the ring because it is an amazing book but you get what i mean like when you go back and read the books that broke the ground after you've already read the books that come after them you're just kind of like oh well cool i mean oh i checked the publication date and i can be like oh this happened way before all these other books i read <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I think there there is some aspect to that that I think is worth worth acknowledging. That just ultimately, the longer in time we go, the the less groundbreaking stuff we might not have uh, read from the past will seem. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's more about recognizing its historical place, you know. I and and again, you're you're making the correct point, which is that this is in no way a slight against the book. This book is incredible. <laughs> it's a, yeah. it's a really good book. It's more about. Not being able to have that experience because we, we we live in a different time now. Yeah, but but at least this is one where you're like, this is the groundbreaking novel for blah, and people can read it and still be like, wow, that's a fucking good book. As opposed to some of the other stuff where they're like, well, this was a groundbreaking thing for that, and you're like, cool, but yikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point, because I would argue that while Hopkinson's obviously not the first uh, genre fiction writer from the the Caribbean, her explosion in the late 90s, 2000s effectively helps to usher in what you could call sort of a, a mini renaissance of Caribbean speculative writers. Um, and so like we would end, end up getting, you know, writers like Tobias Bikel and RSA Garcia, uh, Stephanie Salter, Karen Lord. Um, now we have Cadwell Turnbull and there are many, 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 many more. And so what we've seen is kind of this sudden rise that more and more people are writing, writing this kind of stuff. And some of that is, I think Hopkinson has somewhat of an easier time of it in that her, her work is drawing very explicitly in a lot of cases on Afro-Caribbean traditions, uh, Obeya and, and other types of uh, folklore, etc. I think Bikel has a harder time largely because he, he just goes straight for space opera classic kind of writing of space opera writing and then doing eco thrillers and those kinds of things and what's happened now in the last like 20 something years is the caribbean has started to see somewhat of a of a rise of a kind of geek culture similar Mm. to what we might see in the u.s but different in its own uniquely caribbean way and so you're seeing some conventions um you know anime conventions i think there's a couple of those and you're also seeing the uh caribbean science fiction folks showing up at like the boca lit fest and being well received and i think what the big thing is that folks are still finding is that even when they go to boca you're finding people go i didn't know that that was a thing caribbean people did it's like yep that is so it's been interesting to watch because if we can go back to in time and talk about a work like Brown Girl in the Ring or later in 2000, Hopkinson will will release uh, Midnight Robert, which is my favorite work of Hopkinson's. You're, you're seeing this like great potential of what could be. And in a lot of ways, Hopkinson sort of just smashes the door open and says, the Caribbean's here, welcome. So I should say that's probably not how it actually went. It was There's probably like arguments about like, oh, what is this nonsense? Because there is dialect in this book and there is dialect in like the work of Bacal and others. And we all kind of know that there's all those arguments that people have of like, oh, why did you put Ooh. dialect in the book? Honestly, the dialect in this book is super easy. I did not have really any nah. trouble <laughs> you say i don't want to hear anybody whining about well i don't want to hear anyone whining about the dialect in any book Pre- this was like this was like presented on easy mode i feel like yeah it's it's not hard dialect at all i mean there's only a handful of moments in the entire book when another language is actually spoken and it comes from a character who who speaks another language uh and it's it's literally only a couple of times and it's actually translated for you in the text so mm-hmm Okay, well, I think I think we're there. Yes. We've done it. As a reminder for folks, 
So Alex will be back to talk about Brown Girl Begins, the film that I mentioned at the very beginning. So we'll be talking about that and and to some degree that film on its own terms, but also as an adaptation. And so that'll be part of the very first time we've ever done an adaptation with uh, with the actual work it's adapted from. So that should be an interesting experience, Alex. I mean, I guess it's not a direct adaptation if it's a prequel, but eh, whatever, we'll figure it out. It's in the world. It's good enough to count. Give me an excuse to read an awesome book. I'm not going to complain. Exactly. Don't complain. <laughs> so, so anyway, so thanks so much, everybody, for joining us for this episode of Reading Rangers. You know, if you'd, again, like to let us know what you thought, if you've got opinions about this, we, we could talk a lot more about it. We don't have time to go over every angle, but if there's something you would like to hear us babble about for a listener mailbag episode or something... Again, skiffyfanny.com slash listener suggestions. Do follow us on Twitter at skiffyfanty and the same on Instagram. Subscribe to the newsletter at skiffyfanny.com slash newsletter. It gives you lots of stuff about what we're doing and all that good stuff. Uh, and then finally, please support us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. Every little bit helps there. And do give us five-star reviews on iTunes and other platforms, which helps us not fall away and explode. You can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, or Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. And you can find me, Alex. I'm at Katsudonvery on Twitter. My website is Katsudon.net. Yes, I because that is one of my favorite foods. <laughs> <laughs> and I am on Patreon.com slash Katsudonvery, where I do TV recaps and movie reviews and talking about books. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I... And now have to make this awkward. And so I just want you to note that starting next year, I am putting together an organ uh, collection service to acquire organs that people don't want anymore. I mean, I think that's a really great way to make sure that musical instruments that are unwanted find a, a better home. So good for you. <laughs> nice of you to turn it on me. A plus. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, citizen. And on that You're note, welcome. awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>